This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's a Monday night in January of 2007. And Hassan Namazi is at a party. It's no ordinary party, because Namazi is no ordinary guy. He does not have ordinary friends. The party is in honor of Terry McAuliffe, a powerful political fundraiser who will go on to become the governor of Virginia. McAuliffe is celebrating his new memoir with a big party at the Four Seasons. The Four Seasons is legendary. It's where the term power lunch was invented. Go there for lunch, and you'll find a handful of the Forbes Top 500. This particular night, the guest list is stacked. Barbara Walters is at the party. So's Harvey Weinstein. And Al Sharpton. And even Bill Clinton is there. Guests nibble hors d'oeuvres. They pose for pictures. In a few photos, you see Hassan Namazi with his buddy McAuliffe. Namazi's wearing a bright red tie and a self-satisfied smile. The whole thing is sure to end up in the society pages. Namazi is one of them, New York High Society. He's got a reputation as a family man, a generous philanthropist, and one of the most effective political money men in New York. I'm Preet Bharara, and this is Doing Justice. Today, a story about how a great reputation and a whole lot of money can distract people from the truth. I had been in office only 10 days when my first new major case as U.S. attorney hit my desk. Luckily, I had a team of trusted colleagues like John Hillebrecht. John and I worked together during my years at SDNY before I became his boss. And while I was, I was happy because I expected, given what I knew of your judgment uh, and other things, that you would be an extremely good U.S. attorney. But from a personal note, when a guy, you know, leaves the office and comes back and is your boss, when you used to hang out <laughs> together, go to lunch together and get drinks together, you know, it's time to leave. <laughs> One of John's last investigations at SDNY was the fast-moving fraud case of Hassan Namazi. For our office, it all started late in the afternoon on a Friday in August 2009. Day one, a muggy summer day. The Yankees were about to face off against the Red Sox in the first of a three-game series. John Hillebrecht was on his way out of the office for the weekend when his phone rang. So I get a call from, from an agent. Her name was Talyn Barker. Turned out to be a very good and dogged agent. And gave me the, the kind of basic rundown of, of the situation involving Mr. Mr. Namazi. The agent told him that the FBI had received a tip from an investigator at Citibank. 
they had reason to believe that a very, very large loan that had been made to him had been obtained under false pretenses. What was the size of the loan? It was $74.9 million. Nearly $75 million. That was a lot of money. John started looking into the information the FBI had collected so far. There was a flurry of phone calls that afternoon between me and the agents, and then getting kind of in dribs and drabs a bunch of documents uh, that showed accounts and uh, lists of assets and things like that. And pretty quickly, they began to get suspicious. They were looking through things like bank statements and other financial documents from Namazi, showing he was able to pay off the loan. One of the documents showed that Namazi had nearly $100 million in treasury notes at a company called Pershing. But Pershing's address in the letterhead was wrong. Something wasn't adding up. Well, yeah, more than by, by that point, yeah, I'd say, you know, smelled really rotten. So, so it was clear that there were irregularities, let us put it that way. The FBI agents told John they were going to work on the case through the weekend. So John packed up and went home to his place in Brooklyn, watched the Yankees clobber the Red Sox, and went to bed. Day two, Saturday. FBI agent Delyn Barker was the lead agent on the case. Citibank had tipped her off about Namazi's possible fraud. At that point, Special Agent Barker had been working white-collar financial cases with the FBI for a few years. I'm definitely not the typical person I think that folks would think of of an FBI agent. Um, I grew up in a small town in Texas, you know, blonde high school cheerleader. But my dad had been in the Navy, and my mom was my high school government teacher, and really was always uh, drawn to public service. It was 2009, in the wake of the mortgage crisis, and banks were finally becoming more diligent in their loan processes. I do think that banks during this time were actually reevaluating a lot of their documentation processes. And, you know, I can only presume that this bank was doing that as well in regards to large-scale loans that they had. It was a little odd that the bank would be raising a flag about Namazi's loan now. He'd been borrowing from Citibank for years, and not small amounts. Namazi borrowed millions of dollars at a time and always made his payments. It looks like he spent the money on things like Domino's Pizza, movie theater tickets, and food orders from Seamless, a trip to Palm Beach for New Year's, mortgage payments, and shopping at Christian Dior and Bergdorf Goodman. But earlier that month, when a Citibank representative called Namazi about his loan, the bank rep mentioned that they would be confirming some info with Pershing. They wanted to verify his assets, prove he was good for the money. But Namazi told them not to. He said that he'd rather pay off the loan balance than be verified. Then, over the next few days, Namazi provided Citibank with two statements to show that he had enough money to pay back the loan. One was the Pershing statement with the wrong address, and another one, supposedly from a separate firm called Westminster Securities. When Agent Barker started digging into the documents, she noticed that both had the same phone number listed on the letterhead. So she took a closer look at Namazi. He had a, I believe it was a $20 million apartment on Park Avenue, you know, a multi-million dollar home up in Katona, New York. Those things would suggest that he was an individual of influence. She found some basic information about Namazi's background. His parents were very wealthy. His dad was an Iranian shipping magnate. He went to Harvard and started Namazi Capital, a firm that invested in private companies. They supposedly had $2 billion under management. 
So Namazi was rich on paper and visibly rich. He drove a blue Maserati Quattroport. He stayed in all the flashiest hotels and ate in all the right places. You may have heard of some of them. The Breakers and Cipriani, Cafe Milano in Washington. Michael Gross is a journalist and best-selling author who spent decades covering the lifestyles of America's wealthiest, the people who ended up in the society pages. You know, he, he took limousines. His wife shopped at Missoni and Xenia and Hermes and Dior. He was signaling his affluence and his influence. And the Mazi lived at the right address. And in New York high society, that's a big deal. It's a way of showing your bank book without showing your net worth. There was a writer named Tom Wolfe who coined the phrase, the good buildings. And the good buildings were a handful of Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue apartment houses. And those buildings had a certain cachet. Namazi and his family lived in one of the good buildings, 770 Park on the Upper East Side, just two blocks from Central Park. This is an apartment for very, very rich people. You know, the idea that you would have an apartment with three or four staff rooms in it, that's, that's rooms for your maid and your butler to sleep in, plus a study, plus a library, plus a laundry room. Most people's apartments in New York are smaller than the laundry rooms were at 770 Park Avenue. 770 Park is known for being full of exceedingly wealthy political donors, liberal ones. Namazi fit right in. He'd given generously, mostly to Democrats, and had been a top donor to Obama and both Clintons. Special Agent Barker was starting to get a picture of who Namazi was, his prominence, his influence, his status. Normally, she'd spend time digging more deeply into his financial status and the questions about his collateral. But Special Agent Barker saw that Namazi was booked on a flight to Rome, a flight the next day. He was supposedly going to meet his family on their yacht, but Namazi knew that Citibank was asking questions about his loan. And in Italy, he'd be out of SDNY's reach. What if he was planning to leave and never come back? Sometimes we might want to spend weeks or months conducting an investigation before a conversation. But when we learned that Mr. Namazi had travel planned outside of the country, we decided that we needed to have a conversation with him pretty quickly. Sunday, August 23rd, day three. I get a call and am advised by the agents that, well, we're not going to have that much time because this guy is, is leaving town. And he was, he had a flight out of, I believe it was Newark, that he was supposed to take that evening. John kicked into gear. His team had only a few hours to decide what to do, and the stakes were high. Not just because of the potential crime itself, but also because of who Namazi was. You know, if, if it turned out we were wrong, you know, you, you, you're going to get egg in your face. Which is not to say I haven't had egg on my face before, but you want to make sure you've got your ducks in a row. You want to make sure you, you've, you've been thorough and appropriately thorough. But the truth was, John hadn't had the chance to be appropriately thorough. He'd only known about Namazi for a weekend. We really hadn't buttoned this down, among other things. I hadn't even seen a lot of the evidence. And I'm talking about the evidence the, that the agents had already seen. But then they found a whole bunch more stuff on Friday and Saturday that, that I had not yet had a chance to actually eyeball. 
that's not the way you make a decision to charge a person. Plus, Namazi didn't have any other history of wrongdoing. John needed to make a call fast, but he didn't want to make it on his own. I'm a chain of command guy, and I'm also cover my rear end guy. You don't want to uh, uh, (laughs) act precipitously. John went to Deputy U.S. Attorney Boyd Johnson. And Boyd, my longtime friend and trusted number two, made the call that it needed to go even further up the chain. So the two of them turned up in my office. It was late Sunday morning, only 10 days after I had been sworn in as U.S. Attorney. I was in the office reading up on cases I hadn't been briefed on yet. I remember you were in jeans and I think a t-shirt, and uh, there were a lot of boxes around. I think you were... John talked me through the situation. Um, And we were both kind of wow in some respect. I I was a little (laughs) bit wow. This is kind of like fast moving. It's a lot of, it was a lot of money. And by then I knew this guy was a big guy. He was a prominent guy. So it was kind of a constellation of things that one way or the other is going to get in the newspaper, right? Which is, you know, good or bad, depending on which way it gets in the newspaper. It was tricky. This was the first high-profile case of my tenure, and it wasn't going to look good if we mistakenly arrested a well-respected philanthropist. There were reputations at stake. On one hand, mine and the Southern Districts, and on the other, Namazi's. To me, the fact that he was politically connected wasn't important at all. U.S. attorney is an apolitical job. What was important was that we needed to avoid causing undue harm to Namazi's reputation and to protect the credibility of the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI. We needed to make a decision immediately because his flight was just hours away. We knew we had only a few options. One, confront him at the airport and arrest him. We didn't think an arrest was a great option. We knew we had some evidence that he had forged documents, but did we have enough? Obviously, you don't want to wrongly arrest somebody. You also don't want to uh, hesitate and let scam artists get on the plane and leave, you know, with all his ill-gotten goods. The second option was to just go talk to him, meet him at the airport, and just ask a few questions. And then, you know, there are a couple of ideal uh, outcomes. You know, he makes an admission that solidifies the case, right? Then, Then it's easy, then you arrest him. If he lied to us, we could arrest him too. But it seemed risky. What if he didn't lie, didn't give us cause to arrest him? and got on that plane. But there was a third choice. What if we didn't arrest him, but just asked him to stay in the country? John was dubious. Initially, I I thought that was, well, all right, they can ask, but who's going to say yes to that, right? But we didn't have many other options, and it was worth a try. I I think we all decided the proper thing to do was you know, to be respectful to him and not, you know, not pound the pavement and, and threaten him and call him a liar from the get-go, just like some questions have arisen. John regrouped with the FBI agents on the case. This is Special Agent Barker. At the time that we made the decision to approach Mr. Namazi at the airport that Sunday night, I wasn't sure, you know, how he would react. He obviously um, had had some requests from Citibank to provide documents, so he might have been aware that there were going to be additional questions. I also would guess that he didn't expect those questions to come from the FBI. Someone like Namazi, who knew the power of appearances, might not react well when approached by federal agents in public, where someone could take photos that could end up in the press.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It was Sunday evening, day three, when Special Agent Dylan Barker and her partner got in a car outside of the FBI headquarters in Manhattan. The two of them arrived at Newark a few hours before Hassan Namazi would need to be at the airport. I remember it was actually pretty quiet there. We immediately recognized Mr. Mazi as he entered the airport, you know, near the check-in counter. I don't know what was going through his mind when two FBI agents in suits walked up to him. Maybe he thought there was some kind of mistake. Or maybe he thought he could easily talk his way out of whatever was coming. Or maybe he thought that he was about to be arrested in front of dozens of people. But Special Agent Barker and her partner took it easy. They told Namazi that they had some questions about his recent loan from Citibank. They showed him some documents and asked if he had been the person to submit them. He said yes. Mr. Namazi was very compliant, um, very cooperative, you know, nice, was willing to answer questions, but was mostly reassuring us that this was a misunderstanding. Then, the agents asked Namazi if he'd voluntarily stay in the country while they worked out this so-called misunderstanding. I was surprised that, that he was willing to stay. Meanwhile, John Hillebrecht was at his house with the third Yankees game on, waiting on pins and needles to hear from the agents. It was a long pause between my last call and the call in which they told me he was, he'd agreed not to get on the plane. I was like, unbelievable. I was shocked. John filled me in, and we all breathed a collective sigh of relief. We avoided the doomsday scenario, where Namazi would flee the country, never to be seen again. Now John and the FBI could take some time with the evidence and figure out how to proceed. But then, two hours later, John's phone rang. I'm still watching the Yankees game. It was Namazi's lawyer, Mark Mukasey. At SDNY, we were pretty familiar with Mark. He used to work with us there, and lately, he'd been on the opposite side of a handful of white-collar cases. And Mark says, you know, representing his client, and it's all a misunderstanding, you know, it's all, all going to get straightened out, don't worry about it, I know this guy, and, and he kind of, you know, kind of vouches for it, frankly, as somebody he knows, as a member of the community. Then, Mark said that Namazi would pay the whole $74.9 million back to Citibank the next day. So my first reaction was, oh my God, I messed up. You have to understand. Paying back $75 million overnight is a pretty tall order. Even the wealthiest people would have quite a bit of trouble coming up with that kind of cash on short notice. And it was a Sunday. 
So, so if he's really got, you know, 70, another $75 million laying around, that's some indication that maybe the whole premise of our theory was, was uh, lacking a basis. That's kind of my immediate reaction. I went to bed that night thinking, well, first, thank God we didn't arrest the guy. And I was glad the Yankees won that last game of the series. Day four, Monday morning. John was back in my office. I think I said something along the lines of, you are not going to believe what just happened. Well, I, my recollection is slightly different. I think you said exactly that, except you included an F-bomb. I, I neither confirmed nor denied that. <laughs> Namazi had paid off the whole $74.9 million before noon. I slumped back in my chair. Holy crap. But John looked at me and said, you know what? I'm still not convinced the guy's clean. A guy pays back $75 million in a couple of hours, effectively, right? There was evidence that there was something, you know, as, as we say, fugazi about the documentation that he gave to Citibank. You know, there's something weird here, so let's figure it out. Around SDNY, John's a bit of a legend. He's a monster trial lawyer and an expert in the art of getting evidence admitted in court. This hunch he had, though, that something was up with this repayment? It seemed improbable at best. He walked out the door and pressed forward with the FBI agents. A few hours later, John and Boyd were back in my office. There was something screwy with the repayment. Agent Barker had traced the money that had been wired to Citibank. Turns out that money came from another loan. You know, that was particularly interesting. Paying off the loan, to me, was an act of saying, you have questions. You know, the easiest way for him to resolve those questions was to actually pay off the loan. And to me, concerning that that was a simpler solution to Mr. Namazi than actually providing the detail that was requested around the collateral. Which, you know, is, is a degree of chutzpah. Because in, instead of being a guy who had some kind of problem with his paperwork with Citibank, but otherwise was a, you know, above board kind of guy, what, what we now had some significant evidence of uh, is the guy's a serial fraudster. And he's a serial fraudster to, to the tune of, you know, in excess $100 million. A serial fraudster. $150 million. In the federal system, punishment is linked to the dollar value of the fraud. And Namazi had doubled his fraud in an instant. Monday morning, I thought the guy could be innocent. But by lunchtime, it looked like we had a major Ponzi schemer on our hands. Because that's what he was doing. He was paying back his loan with another loan. And look at who he was scamming. Hassan Namazi simply strolled into the lobby of Bank of America and persuaded a second sophisticated financial institution to part with $75 million. That takes a hell of a lot of clout. And Namazi had used his seemingly extravagant wealth to build that clout, brick by brick. People who want to influence buy it by generating cash for the people who can hand out influence, i.e. politicians. Journalist Michael Gross says that if you want to be influential, there's only one thing you need. There's a saying in New York, it doesn't matter if you're red or blue as long as you have green. Namazi, of course, had personally donated, pretty generously, to a long list of politicians. But he also was an active fundraiser on behalf of Big D Democratic presidential campaigns, Al Gore and Joe Biden, 
had been to fundraisers at Namazi's Park Avenue apartment. He'd spent decades using his money to make friends in the political establishment. Gross says there are two ways to gain influence with a politician. You either give him your own money or you get money from all your friends, but you're responsible for, quote unquote, bundling it, putting it all together and handing it in a beautifully wrapped package to politician A, B, or C. And if you become valuable enough in terms of not just money, but the connections you offer, and enough money can buy you a job. Namazi got really close to one of those jobs in Bill Clinton's second term. After he bundled for Bill Clinton's re-election, Clinton nominated Namazi to be the ambassador to Argentina. But his name was withdrawn from the vetting process when some questions about his business dealings came up. It was embarrassing, yes, but it didn't seem to do much harm to Namazi's reputation. I guess money talks louder. Now, the politicians Namazi donated to didn't help him get loans at Citibank or HSBC or anywhere else. But the reputation Namazi was able to build through his political, philanthropic, and other rich guy activities seemed to go a long way with the banks. But they didn't phase John and Agent Barker. They started collecting the facts they needed for an arrest warrant, beginning with the mysterious Pershing and Westminster statements. And they found that the signatures at the bottom were forgeries. They also figured out that the phone number that appeared at the bottom of both statements belonged to none other than Hassan Namazi himself. We later found out that Namazi, who wasn't very good with computers, had been using his brother-in-law to create the false documents. And his brother-in-law wasn't exactly a professional forger either. And that individual, if you could imagine, was actually in some ways really just cut and pasting the way your kid might make something for an art project and then providing them to Mr. Namazi. It was not a sophisticated fraud, in, in my view, by any stretch of the imagination. Pershing and Westminster are, are you know, relatively well-known you know, financial institutions uh, with which Citibank and the other banks dealt regularly. Somebody could have very easily uh, found out pretty quickly that there was something wrong with these documents. The picture of American success that Namazi presented fooled the banks. They essentially skipped their due diligence. And I think, you know, the way you get away with that kind of stuff is you portray yourself, as he certainly did here, as a guy with hundreds of millions of dollars who would be a really good client for one of these banks to have. The investigation that had started with a bang just days before now revealed that Namazi had also defrauded Bank of America, HSBC, and Citibank. At the end of the day, the total amount of money involved in the fraud? More than $290 million. Hassan Namazi was arrested that Monday evening, one day after Agent Barker had confronted him at Newark. I do recall on the day that he was arrested, he drove himself to the New York office of the FBI in his Maserati, um, which we also seized as part of the investigation. So why would a guy who clearly had considerable wealth risk everything by forging documents? I don't believe that Mr. Namazi ever expected to be caught. He clearly had a belief in himself that he, what he was doing was right and that it was what was necessary for his wife and his children. I don't know that I would use the word greed, although obviously amassing this kind of wealth and apartments and homes would lend itself to someone seeing that as greedy. But 
he certainly, I think, was drawn to power, right? I think that he wanted to be seen in a, in a position of power and wealth in this case, I think, allowed him to be in that position. I watched the reaction to Namazi's arrest with curiosity. Politicians scrambled to return his donations. Friends announced their shock. In one news article, an anonymous financier was quoted as saying, people really like the guy, even my wife, who can generally smell a rat from a mile away. But for this fraud, he was one of the nicest, most respectable, urbane, well-read persons you could ever hope to meet. But for this fraud? There's a lot in that statement. It's a hell of a caveat. And I'm sure Namazi came off as a good guy. His charisma, his philanthropy, it all played a big part in his ability to pull off the fraud. And he really did donate a lot of money to good causes. The fact is, and this is something I really stand by, you can't really know a person. I mean, really know them. Because Hassan Namazi spent years lying his way into a gold-plated fantasy. His victims, besides the banks, were his wife and kids. They had to move out of their home and see their family name all over the news. Before being indicted, Hassan Namazi was big time. Namazi was one of the biggest bundlers for Barack Obama, among other things. He remains under house arrest. <gasps> Your first disgraced fundraiser as president! <gasps> No page six this time. The Namazi case was in the headlines for months. Namazi ended up pleading guilty to three counts of bank fraud and one count of wire fraud. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison. He had to forfeit his Park Avenue apartment, his estates in Katona and Rome, the yacht, the Maserati, and $93 million in cash and securities. At the end of it, his wealth and clout were gone. Here's Michael Gross. I think that somebody who is high on this kind of life can't even contemplate falling. And I think that the fall would be terribly devastating. I think that they're running as fast as they can, and they figure that as long as they can keep those little legs moving, they're going to be able to keep staying one step ahead of Preet Bahara. For me... The Namazi affair was a spine-developing moment. You want to make sure you're holding everyone accountable for crimes they have committed, but you don't want to embarrass yourself, especially 10 days into the job. We all have reputations to uphold. The key is to walk the line so your caution doesn't paralyze you, and when you need to be more aggressive, you know you're not being reckless. There is no precise scale for balancing those things in the delivery of justice Yet they have to be balanced. That's the job. From CAFE, this is Doing Justice, produced in collaboration with Transmitter Media. This episode was written by Lacey Roberts and produced by Shoshi Shmulovitz. This podcast is based on my best-selling book, Doing Justice, a prosecutor's thoughts on crime, punishment, and the rule of law which you can find at doingjusticebook.com and wherever books are sold. We had production help from Jessica Glazer. Our editor is Sarah Nix, and our executive producer is Greta Cohn. The executive producer at Cafe Studios is Tamara Sepper, and the chief business officer is Jeff Eisenman. Meryl Agish fact-checked this episode, 
and Hannes Brown composed our original music and was our mix engineer for this series. I'm Preet Bharara. Next time, SDNY fights for a victim who never expected justice. You know, I was incredibly concerned that there was going to be a lot of slut-shaming and that this was going to be a put-the-victim-on-trial kind of trial, which, in fact, you know, it did turn out to be that in a lot of ways. So is the problem. I'm so, I'm so no drama. Okay, ready? That takes a hell of a lot of clout! For a behind-the-scenes look at each episode of Doing Justice, become a member of Cafe Insider and catch me in conversation with journalist Biana Galodriga. You can do so at cafe.com slash insider.